Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of the endings to each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I happen to like the ending. And today I am here to discuss the ending to Dolores Claiborne. But first, I want to read some emails from the constant listeners out there. So up first, we got Brooke, who writes, Dear Constant Podcaster, I've been listening to your show since about May 2020, and I've been going back through all the older episodes of the novels and your reviews and discussing that thoroughly, discussing that thoroughly discuss endings and actually the longer ones about the entire book. I really, really enjoy it. I'd never written in before. I'm definitely a Dark Tower junkie. I started reading King in second grade, circa 1987. I clearly remember a box set my mother got me for Christmas containing Cujo, Firestarter, and Salem's Lot. Second grade. I still have that uh, original copy of Salem's Lot, weathered as it may be. Anywho, I digress. I'm writing, and because you did mention in the podcast, I was just listening to talking about the wastelands that next week you plan to discuss needful things. When I think of my favorite Stephen King novel, Needful Things is not even one that jumps immediately to mind, but when you bring it up and I think about my entire feelings and memory and nostalgia of this title just overwhelms me. The sad story behind Sheriff Pangborn and the love story with Patricia and how well Aunt Evie's character is fleshed out without her even being a main character. I probably have not read this novel in at least five years, but all the memories just came flooding back and it's such a fantastic read. Mr. Gaunt himself from Akron, Ohio, and the havoc he wrecks upon that entire town only to be defeated in the end by, uh, spoiler, spoiler, um, Alan's magic trick because he finally believes. I mean, what a foreshadowing of, uh, uh, spoiler alert for the Dark Tower book seven. Spoiler alert for the Dark Tower book seven. Uh, I mean, really, what a foreshadowing of Father Callahan's story in the Dark Tower. I have to admit that's particularly poignant to me and impressed upon me enough that Callahan actually is one of my son's two namesakes. That's dope. It might not be his most widely known and definitely not one of his better film adaptations, but the tale itself is just so wide and deep and really addresses virtually every human emotion. I can't wait to hear your review on it, both the entire story and the one that focuses just on the ending and whether it's sufficient. I imagine the main purpose of the email is just let you know that there are people out here listening to you and that are really enjoying all of your efforts and that you are appreciated. Best, Brooke. Um, oh, thank you, Brooke. That was really sweet. Thank you so much for, for writing. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope that you liked the Needful Things episodes. And then we have Cosmo. Longtime listener, listener Cosmo writes, Hey, CR. Your name is even more officially out in the open, but you'll always be CR to me. I've been wanting to write you again for some time, but haven't known what to say until tonight. I want to reiterate right here and now how much I love you and what you've done with the Stephen King cast. I've been steadfast to my completion of the works of King in chronological order and just finished 1993's Nightmare and Dreamscapes. Honestly, I was a little bit underwhelmed by it on the whole with the exceptions of a few absolutely stellar stories, but I'll get to that a little later. 
Um, what great more food for thought you have treated us with with your new mission to explore the endings of King's novels. Absolutely brilliant. Let's keep prov uh, proving King's work as valid literature! Exclamation point. I think his, purport his purpur purported inability to end a novel is one of the main arguments people have against the guy. Literally just shook my head. So thanks for that. What a delight it was to find you on Why We Cover King panel on the Losers Club podcast. So excited for you to have been a part of that and kind of concretize your place as one of the foremost King scholars. That is very sweet, Cosmo, but I can't I can't accept uh, a compliment that high. Um, I do appreciate it, though. I know those are big, perhaps even inflated words, but at the risk of coming off as pompous, they are sincere, and I feel like you've proven... Um, you've proven said worth over the last six years. Thank you again. Happy podcasting anniversary, by the way. It was. Uh, this, this year was my sixth, my sixth anniversary of launching this bad boy. Uh, Cosmo writes, So all of that said on the Nightmares and Dreamscapes, like I said, on the whole, this collection didn't do it for me. Yet, for the most part, I've lined up with your analysis and preference in this book. But where we diverged in the preference was with one of my favorite stories, Sneakers. I found it to be a tight, moody, scary little ghost story. You argued that it wasn't clear what we, as an audience, were supposed to take away from this story. The aspect of repressed homosexuality was blatant, yes, but moreover, what I thought the brighter gem embedded in the story was the idea of acquainting oneself with one's demons so they can be better used and not compromising to one's career-slash-occupation-slash-vocation. John Tell doesn't wallow in disillusionment. In fact, once he discovers the truth or of Sneaker's murder, there is empowering quality he embodies, confronting Paul Jannings and marching out of a good job in favor of maintaining his own integrity. Ambiguity is used with King's finesse in the instance of the ending to this tale. Anyway, I wanted to share some thoughts on this entry, the other stories that stood out to me from the collection, Dolan's Cadillac, The End of the Whole Mess, The Moving Finger, My Pretty Pony, The Fifth Quarter, The Night Flyer, and Popsy. I've been finally getting around to Thomas Harris's Hannibal Lecter novels. I read Red Dragon in June and loved it, and will be reading The Silence of the Lambs this month. I know you're busy with analyzing the endings of King's work right now, but I would love to hear your analyses on Harris's original Lecter trilogy. Anyway, I hope you and yours are well. Long days and pleasant nights, Cosmo. Cosmo, thank you for all the support throughout the years. Thank you for writing in, and thank you for listening to the, uh, the Losers Club episode that I was on um, back in early August. Um, so anyone that didn't listen to the last episode, um, which was the first episode that I had recorded uh, since that special crossover episode, please go on over to the Loser Club feed um, and subscribe. They do good work over there. And I was fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to uh, be invited over there um, to talk about uh, King and how much we all love King. And so it was a fun couple hours of my life. And uh, I think that you'll all enjoy uh, this very special crossover episode. And then we have Karen who writes, Last year, after creating a summer kitchen for preserving my garden tools, I decided I wanted to listen to Audible books to help it make the work go faster. I was thinking that a favorite Stephen King book that I've already read might help me get into listening to books more easily, so turned to Podcast Addict, how I listen to podcasts, and couldn't find books that way. I'm still learning a lot about modern technology, but I did find Stephen King cast. I enjoy listening to you as you review the books, but when you read passages, I am taking right back into the first or latest time I've read the book. You reminded me why I love to read Stephen King, because he's a damned good author, 
and has a way with words that make the stories real, even when they are way out there. Remember the first time I noticed background noise in the podcast? I thought it was intentionally added to increase the suspense, as it was almost a heartbeat, almost heavy breathing. I couldn't exactly decide, but it was making the tale you were recounting even more intense. Then I heard a snuffle and realized it was one of your dogs snoring. I had three old uh, Dashens at the time, and I'm very familiar with that sound. They went to doggy heaven last fall. I'm so sorry. It's the worst. I, I hate it. I'm, I'm sorry. But hearing your dogs snore and scolding them for getting into things, etc. takes me back to the good times. So thank you for that. I'm listening to the podcast in order, but have to admit that I skip over the ones that were not my favorite books. Carrie was too familiar. I was one of the unpopular kids in school, mainly due to my mom's weird religion. Salem's Lot suffered from being compared to Bram Stoker's Dracula, though I have to admit reading both as a teenager and still having that purest attitude of the young. I should go back and give it another try. I listened to some of the Dark Tower episodes, but since the series was not my favorite, I don't listen to them anymore. I read more for the entertainment than the analysis of where the books fit into the King universe. While I enjoy some of the cross-references, I don't like having to think about how it all fits together. Okay, um, spoiler alert for the last three Dark Tower books, uh, Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower. See, guys, I'm, I'm getting better at this, at dropping those spoiler alerts. Um, okay, uh, so Karen writes, So yesterday, in whichever episode it was where another listener said that there was the possibility of Stephen King rewriting some of the series and leaving his own involvement out of it, I really perked up at that. I normally, I don't normally like revised slash re-released works, um, but the ending of The Dark Tower, I'd be happy to give it a try. I'm going to interject. Um, so Karen is referring to an old episode at this point in which a, a listener um, wrote in and inquired about the possibility of King rewriting uh, the books the, la the last three Dark Tower books to remove a, a particular plot element. Um, so there's no concrete, um, there's, there's nothing concrete and there's, it's, it was just speculation. I just wanted to, to put that out there for anyone that wasn't aware. Um, Karen continues, speaking of which, you revised the timeline by putting the stand at its re-release date rather than the date of original release. It was my first favorite Stephen King book. Um, I always prefer to read an author in order so I can see the, pro the progression of their writing. The Shining scared the bejeebers out of me. My favorite chill being the topiary that creeps up on you when you aren't looking, and I didn't see the movie for a few years after its release. They are both the great works of art, in my own opinion, uh, for differing reasons, and have influenced the horror genre as much as J.R.R. Tolkien did for fantasy. But the idea of The Stand just took hold of me. Life as we know it suddenly lost, along with family and friends, how to survive on whatever food you could find, not being able to drive a car because all the other cars were just in the way. Then if you do find other people, can they be trusted? Will they just take everything I have, rape and murder me, etc.? How to stay safe but not be left alone, that would be the greatest challenge of all. The Dead Zone and Johnny Smith's heartbreaking story really captured me, and yesterday I heard you scolding yourself for forgetting that book when making one of your top ten lists. In many ways, it's so different from many of his other works. There isn't true horror in it. It was just the political edge. <laughs> That's it's horrific enough. And the first real love story that just left me so sad because it was never to be. Maybe those issues are why it's easy to forget that it's a Stephen King work. Christopher Walken was the best choice ever for the lead in that movie adaptation. The ice is gonna break. I liked, disliked, or just went meh, my daughter's word, over the intervening books, but it 
has always battled for first place with the stand since I read it the first time. The Losers Club. Uh, reminded me so much of myself and friends when I was a preteen. We even played in a Barrens-esque stretch of land between the railroad tracks and the start of our neighborhood, which was on the edge of town. Sounds like a Springsteen song. What I went to remember uh, the good stuff of my childhood days, I reread it, though I was 12 and 74 and 758. To make this shorter, I won't review all of my favorites. I couldn't remember feeling the same way about insomnia as many of the critics have stated, so I decided to read it again after... Uh, listening to your episode about it, and fell in love with Ralph, Lois, Helen, and Natalie over again. And here's a suggestion for the movie adaptation. Clint Eastwood as Ralph Roberts. I know Stephen King imagined him as Roland, but that role has been eclipsed by Idris Elba now that, now that Mr. Eastwood is older, and I reread Insomnia and was reminded that Ralph had been a tall, thin man. I think he'd be an excellent fit, especially when thinking of Gran Torino and how Walt sacrificed himself. Uh... Oh, okay. I guess that's a spoiler alert for Gran Torino, which I've never seen, and how Walt sacrificed himself to avenge the attack on Sue. Um, um, I'm going to interject. Next week, I'll be talking about Insomnia again, and between this episode and next week, I'm probably going to just re-release my review of Insomnia because it came out um, this month um, back in, what was it, 95? 94? Regardless, um, we're, we're up to an anniversary, and uh, I just wanted to, to... I'll share my original thoughts on Insomnia, because I love that book. Um, and then Karen writes... Um, I realize I missed Joyland Revival and Sleeping Beauties, and in reviewing the official Stephen King website, found that he has a new book. Later, I don't intend on even trying The Colorado Kid due to Stephen King's dislike of it. I do have to ask, why haven't you included the Bachman books in your reviews? Um, I have. I dedicated a uh, entire episode to just the Bachman books, with the exception of one. I am still listening to episodes that you recorded released in 2016, so I know you have a lot of catching up to do, though I do believe it will be in real time with you by the end of uh, canning season this year. I do listen at other times when making soap or cheese or in the midst of a big cooking project. Yep, I'm one of those people will be a huge resource if the stand ever happens for real. Long days and pleasant nights, Karen. Um, Karen, thank you for writing in. And if you like uh, the stand, which you do, I would recommend checking out uh, The Company of the Mad, a, a stand podcast. Um, it's a star-studded, uh, star-studded um, panel book club discussion um, that comes out bi-monthly. Or just monthly, um, and it's it's really really good conversations moderated by Jason Seacrest. Um, so I, I strongly recommend it. It's it's a good time. Um, so it's uh it's another Stephen King podcast plug out there. Um, uh, I'm gonna put a pin in the emails for right now. Uh, but thank you everybody for 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 writing in. Um, and if you have not written in and you want to share any of your Stephen King thoughts, please write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com um, and leave a review, more importantly, on, on iTunes. I need those reviews. That would be really, really helpful. Okay, without further ado, let's get into Dolores. Let's talk about Dolores a little bit uh, and talk about the ending of Dolores. But first, let me read the Wikipedia summary. Dolores Claiborne, an opinionated 65-year-old widow leaving on a tiny main community of Little Tall Island, is suspected of murdering her wealthy elderly employer, uh, Vera Donovan. The novel is presented as a transcript of her statement due to the local constable and stenographer. Uh, Dolores wants to make it clear to the police that she did not kill Vera, 
whom she has looked after for years, but does confess to orchestrating the death of her husband, Joe St. George, almost 30 years before. The confession develops into the story of her life, her troubled marriage, and her relationship with her employer. She begins by describing her relationship with her employer, which began when Vera and her millionaire husband purchased a summer home on Little Tall Island in 1949 and hired Dolores as a maid. Able to cope with Vera's brutally exacting standards, Dolores rises from maid to housekeeper at the Donovan home. After her husband's death in a car crash in the late 50s, Vera spends increasing time at her island house, eventually moving in permanently. After Vera suffers a series of strokes in the 80s, Dolores becomes Vera's live-in caretaker and reluctant companion as the wealthy woman slips into dementia, combating Vera's mind games and power plays when she is lucid and comforting her from terrifying hallucinations as a force she calls the dust bunnies when she is not. Dolores further reveals that the time she began working for Vera, her marriage to Joe St. George was already showing signs of distress due to Joe's drinking and his penchant for verbal and physical abuse. Their problems come to a head one night in 1960 when Joe viciously hits Dolores in the small of her back with a piece of stove wood over a perceived slight. In retaliation, Dolores smashes a ceramic cream pot over his head and threatens him with a hatchet, swearing she will kill him if, she ever, if he ever strikes her again. This confrontation is witnessed by their teenage daughter, Selena, who has not realized that her mother was acting in self-defense. Joe stops beating Dolores, though she allows him to let the island community believe he continues to do so in an effort to save face, but leads to a rift between mother and daughter. In 1962, Dolores notices that Selena has become increasingly withdrawn, frightened, and unsociable. After speculating that she has met a boy or become involved in drugs, Dolores finally confronts her daughter as they return home on the island ferry. She explains the truth of the hatchet incident, which Joe has used to gain sympathy with his daughter, and Selene unwillingly confesses that her father has molested her. A hysterical Selene nearly jumps off the side of the ferry, but Dolores prevents her and comforts her, vowing to protect her. That night, she considers murdering Joe on the spot, describing the urge to kill him as the opening of an inside eye. Instead, she confronts him, promising to have him arrested if he ever touches Selena again. Dolores resolves to protect her children by leaving Joe. When she attempts to withdraw her children's savings accounts to fund their escape, she discovers Joe has stolen everything she has saved. In despair, she breaks down crying at work, forcing her to confide her troubles in Vera. An unusually sympathetic Vera reveals that she has had some sort of experience with Dolores' inside eye and usually and casually remarks that men like Joe often die in accidents, leaving their wives everything. As she departs, she implies that she arranged the car crash that killed her husband and advises Dolores that sometimes an accident can be an unhappy woman's best friend. Dolores begins plotting Joe's death but does not find an opportunity to put her plan into action until the summer of 63. Vera becomes obsessed with a total solar eclipse, Total solar eclipse. It's the rural juror of Stephen King stories. That will be visible from the island, convinced that the event will uh, convince her estranged children to visit her. She plans a massive viewing party on the island ferry. Knowing that the island will be mostly empty as a result, Dolores ensures Selena is sent to camp and her sons, Joe, Joe Jr. and Pete, are sent on a trip to visit family and marks the location of a dried-up stone well and a patch of brambles on the edge of their property. When it becomes clear her children will not be joining her, Vera becomes despondent and lashes out at her hired help, calming only after Dolores confronts her over the unjust firing of one of the maids. On the day of the eclipse, Dolores buys Joe a bottle of fine scotch and makes him a sandwich, getting him drunk and comfortable. 
and they share a moment of physical affection for the first time in many years. After the eclipse begins, Dolores has a vision of a young girl in the path of the eclipse who is at the same moment being sexually abused by her father. Reminded of what she has set out to do, she deliberately enrages Joe by claiming she has recovered the money he had stolen and provokes him into attacking her. She flees into the brambles, leading Joe to the well and tricking him into stepping on the rotted boards that cover it. The planks break and he falls into the well but is not instantly killed. He calls out for help for some time before eventually falling unconscious. Dolores returns to the house and falls asleep but has a nightmare and forces herself to go outside to check out the well. She arrives to discover that Joe has regained consciousness and has managed to nearly climb out of the well, grabbing at Dolores and attempting to pull her in with him. She finally kills him by hitting him in the face with a rock and falls back into the well. Dolores reports Joe missing and his body is found after several days of searching. Dolores is suspected of killing her husband, but Joe's death is ruled as an accident despite the suspicions of the local coroner and the rumor mill of Little Tall Island. Dolores is free of Joe, but her actions damage her relationship with Selena, who suspects that her mother killed her father. Dolores finally comes to the circumstances of Vera's death, which have led her to tell the story. She confesses that Vera, in one of her hallucinations, managed to get out of the wheelchair and fled in terror of the dust bunnies falling down a flight of stairs. As Vera falls, Dolores has a terrifying vision of Joe's ghost covered in dust. Somehow alive and lucid despite her injuries, Vera begs Dolores to help her and end her suffering. Dolores fetches a rolling pin, but Vera dies before she can use it. The incriminating scene is discovered by the local mailman, who clearly suspects Dolores of killing the old woman and forces her to call the police. That night, Dolores begins to be harassed and threatened by members of the island community who already believe she has gotten away with murder. The next day, Dolores receives a phone call from Vera's lawyer who informs a shocked Dolores that she has inherited Vera's entire fortune, which amounts to $30 million. Dolores attempts to refuse the money in favor of Vera's estranged children. She is dumbfounded to learn that they were killed in a car crash in 1961 and Vera had spent the last 40 years of her life pretending that they were still alive. Knowing that the inheritance would have given her motive for murder and worsen the case against her, Dolores convinces herself that the only way to clear her name is to confess everything. Feeling at peace with herself at long last, she ends her statement. Several newspaper articles provide an epilogue to the story revealing that Dolores was cleared of any blame in Vera's death and that she has anonymously donated Vera's entire fortune to the New England, New England Home for Little Wanderers. Final article implies Dolores and Selena have reconciled and that Selena will be coming home for the first time in 20 years. All right, so let's talk about the ending very briefly to Dolores Claiborne. Uh, so we're going to talk from the murder of Joe onward um, because that's that's the climax. Um, it's the murder of Joe. The following action is the truth about the death of Vera and the resolution is the inheritance and the weight um, off of Dolores' shoulders. She is now free from Joe and uh, free from Vera's uh, torment. What's the criteria for a good ending? If we're talking about the ending here, what's the criteria? The first question I'm going to ask is this. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are... Con sorry. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that is consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? Um, received a email um, recently from from Mike who pointed out a flaw and he's absolutely right and I'm uh, upset at myself that I hadn't caught it 
Uh, does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that is consistent with the characters, actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? Much like Gerald's game was, this is an incredibly intimate novel, not in terms of physicality, but in terms of how deeply we are entrenched with the character herself. We're with Dolores every step of the way, from the realization that her husband has been molesting their daughter, to the plotting of his murder, to the day of the eclipse and the fallout from it. I mean, we are with her when she realizes that the fall did not kill him. Things just aren't that easy, so she has to do the job the hard way. We're with her when she has to be active in that murder. We're with her in the police station. We're with her at the bottom of the stairs with Vera. As a reader, I want Dolores to be innocent of the suspected murder of Vera. And if we take her narrative as truth, then she is innocent and it's well earned from a character standpoint. Next question, does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? We had two mysteries in this book. What happened the day of the eclipse and what happened to Vera? And both are wrapped up nicely. From a plot perspective, yes, they build upon each other with consistency. It's a good resolution. Uh, does the conclusion serve the theme, the symbolisms, the motifs? Okay. Molestation um, occurring during, not occurring during, a, sorry, that, getting it confused for a second with Gerald's game, getting the wording confused with Gerald's game. Okay, the eclipse plays into, plays into this. In Gerald's game, the eclipse is uh, a symbol for the ending of um, Jesse's innocence and having her childhood and her dreams and the safety that a father should provide all, all taken away and her future, um, the path that she should have been gone down uh, has been taken away um, in essence because the sun, you know, the sun goes out. The sun itself goes out because of something so horrible. And here the sun goes out um, except now it is for Joe. The sun goes out for Joe. Dolores is the eclipse it comes for him um, so yes I, I believe that um, this image you know stands in for this murder um, and that it, it poses um, Dolores as this force of nature um, something so strong that can uh, block out the sun um, that which gives life um, and I think that that's a, a very very powerful image um, and I just you can't help but think of Kathy Bates right you know perfectly casted character um, actress for, for, for the movie adaptation um, so yeah I, I would say from a thematic standpoint it, it definitely um, definitely fits um, and then what's the most famous scene in the novel? Does it appear in the conclusion? I would say the well, falling down the well, and it does. Are there other factors that we need to consider? Um, you know, it's basically a one-hander. Uh, it, it's, it's so much, um, it's such a character piece. Um, you know, it, it's, it's character-driven, not plot-driven, though that mystery is woven into it. And it is uh, the latest entry in King's exploration of um, the female perspective, uh, you know we've been getting this with with um, Gerald's game. We get it with Dolores Claiborne. We will uh, get it with Rose Matter. Um, so he's on this streak right now where he is really trying to be empathetic towards 
a perspective that he himself by nature cannot fully ever truly understand. Um, and it's quite admirable and he does it really, really well. Um, and he, he, you know, he doesn't fumble at the ending with this. Uh, you know, he, he, he has presented, uh, Dolores as a, a, a wife and a mother and a woman and an employee and a friend and a force of nature, someone who is, um, subservient in some ways, um, but is very commanding and powerful in other ways. She is a fully realized, three-dimensional, nuanced, um, take no shit, tell it like it is, uh, kind of person. Um, she's a great character, a great character, and you really root for her. Um, and that ending pays off for her. So two, two questions I'm going to ask myself is one, do I like the ending? Yes, I do. And based on everything that I just discussed, I think that we objectively can agree that it is a good ending, which brings our tallies at 22 out of 22 endings are ones that I happen to like. Um, and 20 out of 22 endings happen to be good. So we're after analyzing 22 endings of the works of Stephen King, guys, I think he's got the goods. I think he knows how to end, um, end his books. Next week, we'll be talking about Insomnia, a book that I happen to absolutely adore. I love Insomnia. I can't wait to talk about the ending of Insomnia. So let's stick around to see um, if it's a good ending. In the meantime, write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com if you have any thoughts and uh, leave a review on iTunes to, uh, to help this podcaster out. In the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.